Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning, everyone. It's a great joy and privilege to read to you from the scripture this morning. Uh, for today's reading, it's from Acts 19. Please follow along in your Bible on the screen above from the Acts 19. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about 12 men. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and founded 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in his spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, 
who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging, out, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander. Since the Jews has, had put him forward, and having motion with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the cl town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples, nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in a connection with today's events, since there's no real cause for it, and in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, it dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you, Sion. This chapter of Acts describes one of the great high points in the Apostle Paul's ministry. This, the events that are chronicled here take place during his third missionary journey, which was launched in the previous chapter, which we heard about last week. Um, Paul, on this trip, this third journey, finally finds his way for a considerable period of time to Ephesus. If you remember from chapter 16 on his second journey, this is one of the places he wanted to go, and the Holy Spirit prevented him explicitly from preaching the word in Asia. Asia is that province on the uh, southwest corner of Turkey, and that's where Ephesus is there on the coast. 
Uh, he made a brief stop there on his return leg of the second journey just for a short time. Now he comes back and he settles in for a lengthy period of ministry uh, over two years. And it's uh, where he ministers and, and he preaches and teaches freely and he experiences incredible power upon him as an apostle. And we hear about some of that today. Paul would have wanted to go to Ephesus because it's a very important and strategic city. Uh, it was the most accessible city by land and sea in that whole region, and which is probably why it was able to develop into the, a very cult, a cultural center, political center, uh, a religious center for the whole region. Its claim to fame was that it was home to the temple of the goddess Artemis. The Romans referred to her as the goddess Diana. Uh, the, goddess Ar the temple to Artemis there in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it's right up there with the pyramids and the hanging gardens of Babylon. It, this is one of the great architectural wonders of the ancient world. It, there's an there's a artist's rendering of it based on archaeological evidence and descriptions we have of it. It was built on this massive foundation of 10 steps high. You can see how you approach it from 10 steps in every direction. It was 425 feet long in the days of tilt-up concrete, million square foot warehouses. Maybe that's not that impressive to us, but in those days, this was, this was a wonder. 420 feet long, 225 feet wide. It was supported by 127 Greek columns, each over 60 feet in height. And it was one of the, it was the largest such Greek temple ever constructed. It was larger than the Parthenon in Athens. So this was like an incredible deal. It was not just an amazing, impressive building, though. Um, it wasn't just a worship center. This functioned as a number of things, culturally and politically. It was like a, it was an art gallery. It had a store uh, of incredible, impressive works of art, some great works of art that were stored there. And it also functioned like a multinational bank. People from all over the world, pilgrims from all over the world, would bring their treasure there, not as a gift to Artemis, but to store it like in a bank, because nobody would dare steal from such a reverent or revered place, such a holy place. And so you can imagine that this became an incredibly important uh, this was a force. This was an institution that was just, it wasn't just a church. It wasn't just a nice temple. It, it had inc incredible influence and power over the whole landscape economically, politically, and culturally in the city. It was the dominant force. It's not unlike, I think, how IU functions in our town. You know, this is a small town, a Big Ten school, but in the middle is, is IU, and it's like the dominant presence, and it really runs things and sets the pace for our town. Uh, think of that. Uh, Ephesus was also uh, known, probably because of this Temple of Artemis, it was also known for having an emphasis and a special, special focus and a production of magical arts. They published many books, wrote books about charms and spells that were distributed widely. They made, they're famous for these emulets that had little charms and spells that, were, that you could carry on them to ward off evil spirits. They specialized in the art of anything that would protect or curry favor with the spirit world. So if you've ever been to Sedona, Arizona, Eureka Springs, Arkansas, you've maybe... Uh, you got a sense of the flavor of the, the, the uh, superstitiousness, the mysticism 
of this place. So all in all, Ephesus was a satanic stronghold. That's all we're saying. It was a satanic stronghold, a major and influential center of paganism, and thus, for the Apostle Paul, a strategic place to try to win for Christ. Acts 19 shows us what it looks like when the gospel comes in power to a place like this and how it triumphs, how Jesus triumphs over the powers of darkness and transforms a city and a whole regions. There's so many similarities, as I've thought about it, between Ephesus and our town that it's been actually very inspiring to consider how, how blessed of God Paul's ministry was there and how revolutionary it was how it reshaped things in the town. Uh, the gospel made an impact in Ephesus, and we're going to hear about it today. Paul's first encounter here in Ephesus, though, was not with magicians or idolaters. It was with some men, 12 men, who considered themselves to be disciples of John, even though they don't seem to have ever heard about the Holy Spirit or about Jesus Christ. That's pretty amazing because John taught about the Holy Spirit and about Jesus. You can easily prove that from the Gospels. So how these men came to be disciples of John and not know these things is, is a mystery. Now this passage has proven to be uh, confusing and controversial. And uh, the controversy and the confusion seems to center on why on earth these men would be rebaptized. They received John's baptism why exactly or whether exactly they are rebaptized in Jesus, in Jesus' name here. It seems like they were, and a fair reading of the text seems like they were, but why were they and what does that mean for John's relationship to Jesus and John's baptism and Jesus' baptism? You might recall last week we read about Apollos, who was likewise a, a disciple of John the Baptist, and he needed to be taken aside and instructed more fully in the way of Jesus and he got that teaching, and he got correction, but he wasn't rebaptized, as far as we know. Jesus' disciples, who missed, at least some of them, if not all of them, had received John's baptism, were with Jesus. We have no record of them being rebaptized. So why these guys? We're not going to get into it. It's interesting. Come talk to me later if you want to know more about it. Uh, I have an opinion. But what I want to get to is why I think this little section of Scripture is here the big reason from Luke. Not to confuse us about baptism, it's to, it's to point out something, to mark an event. Luke likes signposts. He's telling a story, and he's telling the story of the unfolding mission that Jesus lays out in the first chapter of Acts, in Acts 1.8. You're going to be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem and Judea, and then in Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. And at significant moments of transition or expansion in this mission, we get a Pentecost event. Look at um, chapter, verse 6. Following their water baptism in Jesus' name, Paul, it says in verse 6, laid his hands upon them, these disciples, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. This is the fourth such event recorded for us in the book of Acts. This may have happened many times in, in Paul's ministry. We don't know. It may have just happened four times, but Luke tells us about four. And they're at significant moments of expansion. So the first one was when the Holy Spirit was poured out first in Jerusalem, the birth of the church and the launching of its mission, Acts 2. The second one comes in Acts 8, when the gospel goes to the Samaritans and Peter is sent up to convey this 
special blessing of the Holy Spirit upon the Samaritans. And that's a significant line of expansion into Samaria. The, four, the third one happens at the house of Cornelius when Peter's preaching there and the Holy Spirit's poured out. That's when the gospel first goes to the Gentiles. Significant. And now, here they are at the ends of the earth. As far from the perspective of the early church and the, the, of Palestine, this is, the ends of, this is evidence that the gospel's really going out to the ends of the earth. And so Luke marks that by this fourth Pentecost account. Verses 8 to 10 tell us about where the Apostle Paul ministered during his residency in Ephesus. He first went to the synagogue and taught there. That's verse 8. Paul was afforded as a rabbi status man the privileges of the floor in the synagogues all over the world. And he took advantage of those privileges and would speak and expound scripture and try to preach Jesus to the Jews in the synagogues. That was where he would go first. And, and, and Ephesus is no exception to that. What is exceptional, though, is that here in Ephesus, they tolerated him for a really long time, much longer than normal. In other places, we hear about three weeks. Here, we hear about three months that they were willing to listen to Paul and what he had to say. That's verse 8. It didn't last, though. In verse 9, we read about how some were becoming hardened and disobedient to the word, disobedient to the word Paul spoke. And they began speaking evil of the way before the people. The gospel has this effect. It's in Romans 8, we read, Romans 9, 18, rather, we, we read how Paul says, God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens those whom he desires. And the gospel message has both of those effects. In another place, Paul says it's the aroma of life for those who are being saved, and it's the stench of death to those who are perishing. And that stench of death, they don't like it, and they harden themselves. It's not the fault of the gospel. It's not the goal of the gospel, but it does have this way of revealing the state of hardened, wicked people. They get all the more hardened in their sin if they reject and are disobedient to the word. So Paul, um, when he started to see this happening there in the synagogue, he decides that this is time, this is a sign, it's time to move on. And he turns to, uh, he, with, he takes the believers with him and he withdraws to another venue. He finds a, a new place to do his ministry work and, his, and to preach. And that is in verse 9, the school of Tyrannus. We don't know exactly what this school was, but it's probably just some sort of lecture hall that was built in honor of this guy, Tyrannus. Um, and Paul was able to rent it. Maybe the church helped him rent it for a time. We know that in Ephesus, there was like a siesta in the early afternoon. Nobody was doing business for several hours in the early afternoon. One, it was, it was, it's been famously noted by historians that there were likely more people awake at 1 a.m. in Ephesus than at 1 p.m. in the afternoon. So people went home and they took a nap. And Paul took advantage, possibly, of those hours to get a good rate on an open space. And it, the advantage here is that he gets to do his work every day. He doesn't have to wait from Sabbath to Sabbath, but he has a place he can go. And um, people come to him. Maybe the church gathers there. Maybe people are passing through and, and hearing about Paul and wanting to hear what he has to say. And he's there every day reasoning and teaching them about Jesus. The Lord gave Paul a platform 
there in Ephesus to preach and teach, and he blessed his efforts mightily. Look at what it says in verse 10. Because he got to do this there every, daily for two years, it says, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Isn't that amazing? That's a blessing um, on Paul's ministry and on that whole region that God gave him this space and this place, space of time, and God blessed such that all got to hear the word. Would that God would grant this church that kind of influence. You know, we get together, we hear God's word. May we have faith to take it out and to spread the word so that all southern Indiana... (laughs) That's what it's saying. Everybody in, in Bloomington and southern Indiana got to hear the word of God. We should pray that God would bless and magnify his word here and through us. Well, this wasn't only a time of extraordinary teaching. It was also a time of extraordinary power and miracles, which God added to the message to draw attention and to magnify his messenger and the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus. We've heard about in chapter 5 of Acts how Peter's would walk past and his shadow would fall on somebody who was sick or diseased and they would be healed, just his shadow. In the gospels, we read about how Jesus seems to be able to heal sometimes from afar just by a thought. Paul is added to this kind of company here in Ephesus, these, these kinds of powers are, are, are evident in his ministry. Look at verse 11. Handkerchiefs or aprons, it says, were carried from Paul's body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Handkerchiefs and aprons. It sounds positively Victorian. But these were uh, these are unfortunate translations, I think. These are more like uh, sweat rags from heavy labor and like um, thick leather aprons that a, that a craftsman would, would have on to protect his body from sharp tools. Paul would have had these kinds of items because he was a tradesman. Uh, he, he had skill with mending tents or building tents, making tents, and that was his trade. And he had only recently been engaged in it. So he had these things and they could be carried from him taken to a sick or possessed person, they could be delivered or healed. Very powerful blessing of God upon his ministry. Notice that it says uh, in verse 11, Luke is careful to point out who's doing the miracles. Very significant, careful writing on Luke's part. God was performing extraordinary miracles through Paul. And I think that's Luke in a mad sorcerer's context, trying to make it clear that Paul's not just a really great sorcerer or magic man, but he, 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 God is the one performing these great things through his servant, Paul. Still, this would have brought, did bring a lot of notoriety and attention to Paul. That's part of the point, to magnify his ministry and his message, and it brought a lot of attention. The local spiritists and charlatans took note, We read about that in verses 13 to 16. There's this group of brothers, Jewish exorcists, seven sons of Sceva, one of Israel's chief priests, and they make their living, it seems, going from place to place, casting out demons and evil spirits. So clearly they're not doing this um, from faith or as a mercy ministry to relieve the oppressed. This is their business. 
This is what they do for a living. Uh, whether they do that with uh, effectiveness or not, I don't know, but they're probably capitalizing on their Jewishness here in this pagan context. Ooh, there's somebody new from out of town and some other special religion. Maybe, they, maybe we'll give them a try. So they, they go around the region and they try to make money this way. God decides to make a notorious example of them and it, draws atten- and it grabs the attention of the whole city. These seven brothers see the power of Paul and try to tap into that themselves. They attempt uh, to command uh, a particular evil spirit uh, to come out of a man in the name of Jesus. They name the name of Jesus, um, saying, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, which is a very interesting sort of distancing themselves from the whole concept, but trying it out kind of like a charm. We'll see if this name has any effect. And they learn very quickly that the name of Jesus is no charm. What is the name of Jesus? Appealing to Jesus is not an, it's an appeal to authority over demons. That's what it is. Jesus has authority over the demons. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. So an appeal to his name is ultimately appeal to authority. Jesus had authority to cast out demons because he's the king of kings. He had given such authority to his servant Paul and his other apostles and others at times to command the demons to come out. People, though, who aren't in Christ and aren't his special servants in this way, do they have authority over the demons? What about people who are not in Christ? Do they have any power or authority over the demons? Quite the reverse. They are under the power and authority of demons. What does it mean to be a child under your father? It means to be under his authority. Jesus, accusing the Pharisees in their hypocrisy and their faithlessness, says, you are of your father, the devil, which is to say, you're under his authority. You're of him and under his authority. These people were playing around with things that they had no right to, and the demon, God allows, I think, the demon... (laughs) to taunt them and to expose them as frauds and hucksters. And the demon says, I recognize Jesus. I know that name. And we know about Paul. I've heard about him. But who who are you? Who are you? Who do you think you are? And this spirit-possessed man pounces on them, roughs them up, de-pants them, and sends them running scared for their lives. And it's very powerful. It has a huge effect on the whole city. Word gets around about this, and it sparks a revival. This is a very powerful thing that everyone hears about, and it sparks revival and reformation throughout the city and change. Verse 17 says, this, These events became known to all. Both Jews and Greeks heard about this, those who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Why would fear fall upon them because of this? It's something maybe to laugh at. <laughs> a bunch of Jewish hucksters exposed by an evil spirit, bested by an evil spirit. Why would everybody be fearful? You think about it. They knew the details of the story. They knew that, they had tr- that this had happened. This is not something that happens. This had happened because they had named the name Jesus and Paul. 
And so God allows this as a way of introducing to everybody that there is a new boss in town, something they've never grappled with before, something that their magic and their sorcery and their exorcists have no power over. They cannot manipulate this. They don't know how to deal with it. This is a new power. This is a real power with real authority. And it caused them all to be fearful. You know how you realize at times in your life that you're just not in control? <laughs> you don't normally go around thinking that. You normally go around thinking, yeah, I've, I've got this. I'm in control. I just need to move a little money around. I'll do this or that. I'm in control. I got this. And then there's times when God just, through circumstances in your life, reveals to you, I, I'm out of control. I, God's in control. And that's what it's like. That often happens at times when we're afraid. Or fear is very much uh, present in those kinds of moments. Sometimes it really is that we come face to face with God. We don't, we're squeamish about fear. We're squeamish about fear. We like God to work in nice ways. <laughs> nice. We like God to be a nice guy. And to work in comforting ways and sweet ways, nice ways. Back in the old days of David's mighty men, in that training, if you, go, if you were around in the old, the former iteration of David's mighty men, there was this constant, uh, uh, what does Nathan Alverson call it? Tropes. Is this tropes? I'm learning this new word, trope. Trendy word. Um, there was the sort of go-to illustration back in the old days. Remember Hurricane Katrina? It was a hugely devastating event. And there was this famous pastor that went on Larry King, and Larry King's asking him about Hurricane Katrina, and Larry King's no dummy, you know. And, and he, he says, hey, so pastor, where was God in Hurricane Katrina? And the pastor's like evasive and <laughs> trying to, and he's like basically ends up denying that God was, had anything to do with Hurricane Katrina. God, God, God's not like that. God was not in the hurricane. God's in the people that showed up to do the relief work. That's where we want God to be. This is one of the most celebrated pastors in the country. It might be you or me if we were put on the spot like that because we're squeamish. We're, we don't like God to work in fearful, awesome ways. And Larry King just delights because he just keeps pushing him because he just knows he's got this guy. He's got this. Is any idiot knows God? If God is, God's in the hurricane. I was uh, involved in a good discussion recently with a group of area pastors. By the way, it's just God has been kind to us in the last few years to give us good relationships with other pastors in this town. For many years, we and they labored in isolation and loneliness and competitiveness, and God is, is building something new. It's very sweet. Recently, we had a good discussion about how nobody wants to have funerals anymore. What do we want? Celebrations of life. Nice things. We don't want to think about death. We want to think about life. Hey, somebody dies, let's think about life. What does Ecclesiastes say? It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. 
Why? Because that's the end of every man, that dead body right there, that palpable example in front of everybody. That's the end of every man. And the living take it to heart. Fear. I remember when my grandfather uh, Lon was dying, a godly man, pastor. He was doing the difficult work for days and days. It was agonizing for him and for us to watch of dying. And I was a Christian. He was a Christian. And I still remember in those last couple of days, we didn't spend the day with Grandpa watching him, praying for him, singing to him. And then we would, I'd come home at night and I couldn't sleep. I was troubled about my soul as I, through my grandfather, considered my mortality, the judgment seat of God. I was brought face to face with reality, the end of every man. And it's fearful. It's fearful. Not every kind of fear is godly. There is a fear that drives us away from God, where we run from him and hide. Adam's fear in the Garden of Eden, hide from God. There's another fear, though, which drives us to him in repentance, where we humble ourselves before him. We do the soul work that we have to do in humility. And that kind of fear is something we should embrace when it comes. That's when God is doing good work in our hearts and saving our souls. And we should not discourage it in people when we see them struggling in that way. We should, you know, so what's happening here in Acts, there's this, there's this macro fear that falls upon the whole city. And it's nice to think about something, an event like that happening in Bloomington, a revival event where everyone suddenly realizes God. But there's micro fear, uh, revival events like that that are happening all the time in our lives, in our neighbors' lives, in our school, in our classrooms, in people's lives. And these times when, we, when God mercifully brings us to the end of ourselves and points out, oh, no, you're not in control. And those moments when we have those, those realizations and our neighbors have those realizations. Those are moments when tend to be open, teachable. And do we have sensitivity for the, those things in, in our neighbors' lives, in our children's lives, in one another's lives? Do we draw near to one another and to our friends and neighbors, and especially to unbelievers who need hope and need direction? They don't always go around being open to that direction, but sometimes God lays them low. And are we there to help them and to teach them and to preach to them the good news of Jesus? The city was filled at this time with fear. And it led to revival. And to some really glorious acts of public repentance. Look at verse 18. Many also of those who had believed kept coming because of these events, because of the fear they kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. 
And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. That's, a, that's, that's marvelous. That is marvelous. Widespread reformation, change, revival, humility, repentance, action in keeping with repentance. Anybody needing to clean house? These people surrendered to God. They came face to face with the authority, the reality of God in their lives, and they surrendered to him, and they became, they zealously went about purging their life and their homes of all the stuff of their old ways of thinking and believing and practicing. So their old religion and all the stuff of that old religion and their old vain attempts to manipulate and control the world. By the way, if you want to understand magic, that's what it is. It's an attempt to manipulate and control and express, to um, exercise dominance over the world. That's what magic is. And it's so unchristian. It's just completely unchristian because it's, first of all, godless. And second of all, it establishes you as God. That's, an, that's what it is. It's the, the accumulation of powers and tricks that make you God. And, and suddenly God comes to town and the gospel is what? We have a father who is ready to do us good and to help us. And we can turn to him in prayer and we can trust him with our lives. And I don't have to worry about being in control. There is somebody in control and he's good. I'm not subject to the spirits and their whims. I am under God's authority and he is a father and he's good. And that is completely revolutionary. And it, it makes, uh, ma- renders magic, uh, it exposes magic for what it is. And these people saw the difference and they were zealous to purge themselves of all of these evil practices and all of their books. Now they didn't take their filth to goodwill so that somebody else could find their way to it. They didn't sell it on eBay to try to recoup their investment. Thousands and thousands of dollars, some of these people. What do they do? They put it in a pile in front of everybody and they burn it. They denounce it. Publicly burn it. Matthew Henry, I loved this turn of phrase. He said, they took a pious revenge on all of the, all of the instruments of evil in their homes and in their lives. Isn't that a, isn't that a nice thought? Took a pious revenge on it for God. What if God brought repentance like that to Bloomington? Wouldn't it be an amazing thing? Just think about it for a second. So you've got Planned Parenthood down this, you know, right down there in the center of town. What if there was such fear fell upon the city and the leaders of Planned Parenthood and the city leaders, they, they, they brought out all of the, the surgical tools and devices and beds in, the, in, in Planned Parenthood and all the computers and the copy machine and all the files and all the stuff and put it in a pile. And then also all the pharmacists and all of the Kroger's and everywhere brought out all of the murder pills that were in stock. They banned for future shipments. They took out the full stock. 
put it in that pile, and all of the citizens of the town opened up their medicine cabinets and brought all the murder pills that they had in their cabinets. And they brought them and added to the pile, denounced them and burned them. That's like what's going on here. What, we have the Kinsey Institute at IU. Heard of the Kinsey Institute of Sexuality? Is one of the greatest, or greatest, largest collections of pornography and filth in the world. What if the directors and the staff of the Kinsey Institute and the president of IU and everybody, that fear fell upon them and they realized the wickedness of such a place and all the filth, and they brought it out, put it in the middle of the city, denounced it, and burned it. What if that happened? Would we, I mean, that's, that's on the order of what's happening in Ephesus under Paul's ministry. Wouldn't that be a marvelous thing? Marvelous. And a true sign of God's greatness and the power of his gospel. To say that we want things like that, if you were among those who in your heart or with your head were affirming that that's something that you would want to see happen, to say that, to acknowledge that that's wicked and, we want, and to say we want revival there is to exercise judgment. You can't say that's bad and we want, you can't say I want revival without exercising judgment and condemning something. <laughs> Do you understand that? Here's my question. Where is judgment to begin? Kinsey Institute, Planned Parenthood. Where is judgment to begin? The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Do you want revival? It's got to start somewhere. It's got to start somewhere. Where, where should it start? Has fear fallen on us? This is the question, my question that I've been pondering the last couple of days. Has fear fallen on me? Has it fallen on you? Have you repented of your sins? Have you brought out all the filth and the junk and cleaned house? Has fear fallen on us? It, it needs to fall on the church. That's where fear needs to fall. The church has a conspiracy against fear. The fear of the Lord. We need revival. The church in America needs revival. And the church is filled with people pointing its fingers at the, at the Kinsey Institutes of the world and the Planned Parenthoods of the world and the Democrats of the world and, and, and the, you know, endless, endless. And talking in their echo chambers about plans for reformation and what they need to do and what they got wrong and all this stuff. Oh my goodness. There's really only one question that should concern us. Has fear fallen upon us? There's plenty of judgments to make. It's not wrong to make them. Horrible deeds done in our town all the time. 
If we want reformation, we must want it for ourselves first. It's got to start somewhere. I bet these people who burned their books, who were zealous in that way, were also zealous to convert other people. God had delivered them from superstition and blindness and given them hope. These widespread acts of repentance were a testament to the amazing blessing of God on Paul's ministry during these days of Ephesus. In verse 20, Luke concludes that section by saying, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And that's what it looked like when it did. And around this time, Paul, in the, in the spirit, he's been there a couple of years, he's experienced these wonderful things, he determines in the spirit it's time to move on. And he, he sets out a plan, a course of action, which Luke gives us here for a couple of reasons. And that one of them is just, it's like a little bit of a forecasting where we're going in the rest of the book. We're ultimately aimed at Rome. And we're going to get there by way of Jerusalem. That's just a little in, early indication of where the rest of the book is taking us. But also, I think he wants Paul, before, these, before the stuff hits the fan in the rest of the chapter... With the, with the mob and the uproar in the theater. I think he wants to make it clear that Paul had predetermined it was time to leave so that Paul is not ever thought of as somebody who had run from a fight because Paul is about to go into the darkness. You don't know this so much from Acts, but when you compare Acts in this time and with his second letter to the Corinthians, which was written very shortly after this moment, Paul was in a dark place. He writes in 2 Corinthians to that church across the sea. He says, we despaired of our lives. We fought with beasts in Ephesus and we despaired of our lives. We had the sentence of death within ourselves. So there's highs and lows with apostles and Paul's about to go low. And I think Luke knowing that wants to make clear that he had, he'd, at a high point he determined it was time to move on, not at a low point. Verse 23 um, gives us this long episode here at, at the close of this chapter, very colorful episode at this time that took place. Verse, it says, about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. The way is a way of referring to the way of following Jesus, the way of discipleship. There arose a disturbance about the way. What was it? What was the disturbance? Well, the message of Jesus was reforming the city. It was having an impact. It was changing the economics of the whole town. It, it had done something. It's, it, isn't that nice? Wouldn't it be nice to think that we would like show up on the map? <laughs> that God would magnify his words so much in our community that it would start to threaten the powers that be? Do you know that the economics of Bloomington are just completely enmeshed with wicked, godless ideologies. I know you know that, because I hear you talking about it and complaining about it all the time, gnashing your teeth about it. I spend a lot of time complaining about it. Why has God put us in Bloomington? To be kind of, you know, go about our little business, but to be kind of just grumpy about the people we have to live with and put up with and the rules we have to put up with. Is that why we're here? The merchants, the, the 
the craftsmen and the merchants of idolatry in Ephesus get together and they decide that they're not going to stand for all this change. And here's what they do. I'll, give you try, I'll try to give a brief summary here. Verse 24 tells us that a, the, a great disturbance was started and led by one of the leading businessmen in Ephesus, Demetrius the silversmith. He's a craftsman of silver shrines of Artemis. Demetrius calls an emergency meeting of his craftsman guild, and he says, men, you know that our prosperity, not our livelihood, but our prosperity, <laughs> depends upon this business of ours. We've all made a lot of money together, but that's really threatened right now. And we need to do something about it. Why has it been threatened? Well, you've heard about this Paul guy. He's been going around and he's convinced all of the city and most of Asia with this idea that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Can you believe that people are believing this stuff? And this threatens our business. Our business is based on people believing this. We need to do something about this. Not only is this trade of ours in danger, but the, the, the goddess herself and her great temple and her majesty is, is threatened. He gives a great speech. The guild is enraged. They go about the streets stirring up the sentiments of the people, and they lead a big crowd, a mob together down to the theater, and they, find a couple, they can't find Paul, but they find a couple of his friends, Gaius and Aristarchus. They drag him into this theater. You can see a picture of this theater. It's still in existence, so the ruins of it. You guys bring it up. That's, that's the real theater in Ephesus. That's where this went down. It'd be cool to go there, wouldn't it? And to imagine this story. It holds 26,000 people. So it's like, you know, it's like a football stadium, a soccer stadium. And probably it got full, at least by the end of these hours of protest. Uh, they drag him in there. Paul hears about what's going on, and he wants to go in probably to try to persuade the whole crowd that they're wrong and that they've just misunderstood and that gods made with hands are not gods at all, at least to, to rescue his friends and help them out. But he's counseled not to go in, and even the Asiarchs, which are like civic leaders, friendly to Paul, they write to him, probably knowing his, what he's thinking, and they say, Paul, please do not go in. That's not going to help. We have a, we have a thing going on. We've got to try to control it, but you are not going to be helpful to that. Please do not go in. Paul listens to him. This guy, Alexander, who is a Jew, is brought up to the platform to make a speech. He's prob probably the Jews are putting up one of their men because they want to distance themselves in this whole anger from the Jews, like the Jews, from Paul. We don't, you know, Paul doing his thing, that's not our business. We're not, don't lump us in with him. But as soon as they see that Alexander is a Jew, they get, they are enraged again and they start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That goes on for two hours. What is this? Have you ever heard of Maoist struggle sessions? You guys know what those are? Under the Chinese communist Maoist regime? That's, that's what, this is, not, this is not a violent mob. They're just trying to shout down and condemn. That's what they would do. They would try to control, thought control through just shouting down. So it's like, it's like cancel culture before the internet. Seriously, that's what this is. An attempt to cancel the Apostle Paul and the church and the witness of the gospel in their town just by out shouting it. And maybe to embarrass them, maybe to intimidate them and to drive them out of town. The town clerk, who's probably a Greek, they're all Greek, but they're under the Roman rule, 
he's probably thinking, I'm going to be, I might, my sympathies might be with the mob, but I got to answer to the Romans for any scene that's not lawful here. And so he does his darndest to get them to calm down and to reason with them. And he gives a good rationale for going home based on the rule of law. Demetrius has a complaint. The courts are in session. Would please everybody file out now. This is over. And he's, he's probably thinking his gods that he's successful and they go home. I just want to make one point about this. There's lots of awesome things that we could draw out of that, that colorful account. One thought for us, okay? Wouldn't it, again, wouldn't it be marvelous? Wouldn't it be awesome? I, wouldn't it be, I don't get a lot of head nods in either service when I ask this question, but I know you, I listen to you, I know many of you, most of you say yes in your heart. Wouldn't it be awesome to see God magnify his word and for people to come to know him in such numbers that it would change the political and economic cultural landscape of our city and of our region. That would be awesome. How did it happen in Ephesus? Well, yes, God did miracles. He did, uh, he did remarkable things, magnifying his word with miracles. But there underneath the miracles was the Apostle Paul reasoning and persuading and appealing daily. And he couldn't have done this alone. The whole church participated in it with him, supported him, helped him, took his teachings out to the other towns, spread the words, invited their friends. And God blessed it. So there's two things. This is revival. That's what revival looks like. And revival is not something that man can create. At the, the great, the people who have written and studied the history of true revivals, they all conclude that. You can't manipulate it. You can't create it. God gives it or God withholds it. So lesson number one, if we want this, let's pray and ask God who has the power to do this. This is not a one-off in history. This is not one of those things in Acts, you know, that, well, that's good for Acts. Never going to happen again. This is something that has been repeated in history. Marvelous, widespread repentance, transformation almost overnight of whole towns and cities and regions and countries has happened. It can happen again. We should pray for it. And you know the other thing they say about revival when it comes? Prior to it, and through it, and after it, there's faithful people doing faithful work. Are we doing that faithful work? Appealing to our neighbors, witnessing to our classmates and our coworkers, inviting them in to, the, to hear the word at the school of Tyrannus or Trinity Reformed Church? Are we doing that work? We want to be about the Lord's business. And we want the conditions to be right for revival. There's those two conditions. God deciding to show up in blessing. And God's people doing his work through the normal means 
of persuasion and argument and appeal and love. God, help us. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we pray that you would use it to change us and that we would be faithful to witness to the truth that you have privileged us to know, and that you would bless our efforts and that it would lead to conversions of idle buyers, idle sellers, idle makers in our town. And that we would have faith and hope that you can do great things and intend to do great things. Oh Lord, bless this town and this city and this church with revival. Help us to fear you and to repent of our sins. And would you extend that blessing, Lord, to this whole town. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.